This is The Guardian. Today, how the Supreme Court tore up a 50-year-old precedent on the right to abortion, and the women now left without a choice. It was a constitutional hand grenade, thrown into the decades-long fight over the right to abortion. On Friday, family planning clinics around the US received the news that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade, a ruling that had protected the right to an abortion since 1973. The Guardian's Jessica Glenzer has been reporting on the fallout even though many clinics knew that this was likely and that they had themselves warned about it for many, many years, decades, the immediate impact was, I think, first a sense of heartbreak and despair and shock. The impact of Friday's decision was swift, and in some states with so-called trigger laws in effect, abortion clinics closed down and stopped providing services almost immediately. In states which already had so-called trigger laws in place restricting abortion, clinics were forced to spring into action. There was this report about these extremely emotional, devastating scenes from providers at a clinic in Texas who were forced to shut down, cancel all their appointments, call women and tell them what had happened, leave an outgoing voicemail message that said... We are so sorry, but we can no longer accept appointments because the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade and abortion is no longer federally protected. In effect, it is now illegal in Texas. We are so sorry. In the coming months, tens of millions of Americans will lose a right that has given women control and choice over their own bodies for decades. Many will now be forced to travel hundreds of miles to access safe abortions or try to terminate their pregnancy alone. Others will be left no option but to give birth. It's really hard to overstate the significance of a decision like this, and really it's almost without parallel in terms of Supreme Court decisions. It's hard to think of another situation where people's rights and such a large swath of the public have had their rights disappear overnight. And there could still be more to come. The conservative majority that makes up the Supreme Court has already signaled that other hard-won civil rights are on the table to be reconsidered. From The Guardian, I'm Noshe Iqbal. Today in Focus, the women's lives in danger in an America post Roe versus Wade. Jessica Glenzer, you're the senior health reporter at Guardian US. On Friday, the Supreme Court overturned the ruling which has granted American women the right to an abortion for the last 50 years. What happened and how did those nine justices reach that judgment? In short, the conservative justices in a 
five, four or split six, three decision said that there is no tradition of abortion in this country. And because the abortion issue is special because it terminates a potential life, there is no constitutional right to abortion. Now, the reason that I say five, four and six, three is one justice said that he wouldn't have gone so far as to overturn Roe versus Wade, but he would have allowed a severe restriction to abortion. And his reasoning might have opened the door for future cases and restrictions. But the bottom line is that the conservative justices, the conservative supermajority of six, was able to overturn Roe versus Wade, and a liberal minority of three was only able to dissent an issue, really a blistering dissent, to say that this will cause the suffering of millions of women. Jess, for people who are not familiar with the relationship between the Supreme Court and the states in the US, can you explain why this ruling will mean the rights of women will vary so much across the country? So the Supreme Court ruled there is no constitutional right to abortion. And I think it's easy to assume that that means that no one in the United States can obtain an abortion. But that's not right. What it will do is create a patchwork where some states have banned abortion entirely, often without exemptions for rape or incest. And some states have protected the right to abortion. Basically, what the court is saying by saying there's no constitutional right to abortion is that there's no protection for it, and therefore states can regulate it as they see fit. In many cases, that means eliminating it entirely. What was the reaction around the country when that ruling was announced? People have taken to the streets in major American cities... Pro-choice protesters have had much larger protests. I think that people are so disturbed that they took to the streets simply to express their anger at the decision. But I also think that there's a sense that this organizing has to go deeper and further because the only feasible way to obtain a right to abortion now is through either state legislatures or Congress. On the other end of the spectrum, anti-abortion protesters have showed up to protest blowing bubbles, jubilant, celebrating, and vowing to push for more restrictions and bans and a constitutional amendment and to continue their momentum to restrict the ability to terminate a pregnancy. Jess, can you talk me through which of the 50 states have already effectively banned abortion and which states are in the process of doing so? So there's nine states that have already banned abortion outright from the moment of conception. It's entirely banned. Six of those nine have no exceptions for rape and incest to give listeners a sense of how extreme those bans are. However, of those nine states, they represent just a small portion of the 26 that we believe are certain or likely to ban abortion as things kind of shake out over the coming months. So that's more than half of the United States, and it is not evenly spread around the country. It represents a large swath of the South and a large swath of the Midwest, excluding Illinois. So I think that the true scope of how 
states will seek to ban abortion is yet to be foreseen. So where in America is it most dangerous to have an unwanted pregnancy right now? It's such a hard question to answer. Like, how do you measure that? Is it by the distance that a woman would have to travel to seek an abortion? If so, Louisiana comes to mind, where the nearest abortion clinic would be in Illinois. That's an incredible distance. Or do you measure it by thinking about the states where prosecutors are most willing to stretch the law and perhaps experiment with prosecuting pregnant women who try to end their own pregnancies? Or do you measure it by the state where there are the women most likely to develop complications from pregnancy? If so, Mississippi comes to mind, where there is a large population of African-American women who are disproportionately likely to suffer bad outcomes and, and maternal mortality. There are so many ways to measure and so many bad potential outcomes from unwanted pregnancies that it's hard to even know where to begin to describe the most dangerous place to have an abortion in the United States. And that doesn't even get into some of the consequences that we talk about less. For example, women who seek abortions are more likely to be mothers and have children already. If they're denied an abortion, they're more likely to live below the poverty line for an extended period of time. They're more likely to have their creditworthiness impacted. They're less likely to be able to bond with their infants. They are more likely to experience intimate partner violence. And their children are more likely to live in poverty. Jess, do we know how many women this will affect and how many unwanted pregnancies there could be? Every woman in America is going to be impacted by this in some way, and every family in America is going to be impacted by this in some way, even in states where abortion remains legal. Why do I say that? States where abortion remains legal are going to see a large influx of patients from states where abortion is illegal. And the ability of the system to absorb that capacity is yet to be foreseen. Even for women in states where abortion is illegal, who disagree with abortion, there could be impacts because obstetricians and gynecologists may find that those states are hostile work environments and they may start to flee. I don't think that any partner wants to see their pregnant partner suffer when they can't obtain an abortion because a fetus has severe abnormalities and abnormalities that are not compatible with life. And I struggle to see how a woman who's forced to carry her rapist's child will not have impacts on her broader community. To strictly answer your question, there will be about 60,000 additional unwanted pregnancies per year and, and births per year as a result of 26 states roughly banning abortion. But that's just an estimate. Just what help is being made available to the women in those circumstances? And what other practical options do they have? Well, certainly there are grassroots groups called abortion funds that have solicited donations and worked to provide funds to the neediest women to travel to states where abortion remains legal. Women in states where abortion is illegal might also seek to self-manage abortion through a medication called Mifeprix, which is approved by the Food and Drug Administration to terminate a pregnancy up to 10 weeks. However, 
states that are hostile to abortion have tried to make it more difficult to obtain that medication by limiting its prescribing through telehealth. There's also some movement by clinics to look at setting up clinics on state borders or mobile clinics, perhaps in vehicles or finding ways to accommodate women who might be traveling from out of state. State legislatures are also looking at how, in states that support abortion, looking at how they can support women traveling in from out of state and how they can support more women within their own state. For example, by allowing the government to um, pay for abortions for poor women through a public health insurance program called Medicaid. And just to be clear, these are these are the kinds of questions. The question that I'm answering is the kind of question that women in states where abortion is already illegal, nine states, are asking themselves, how do I deal with this? What do I do? Do I take all of my money and go travel? Do I try and do this myself at home? Can I do this myself at home? Just do we know yet if a woman could be criminalized for trying to seek an abortion for either buying abortion pills or traveling to another state to access one? So right now, it is not illegal to cross state lines to seek an abortion. Anti-abortion groups have already said that they want to seek laws that would criminalize traveling across state lines to obtain an abortion. There are some existing statutes in states like, for example, Louisiana, called accomplice statutes that could be used to criminalize the people who help women travel across state lines to obtain an abortion. And defense attorneys have told me that the creativity of conservative prosecutors is something of deep concern to them and something that they feel could immediately lead to legal risks for women, even if laws remain the same. These are live issues and they could be tested in the very near term. How much impact do you think Trump's presidency has had on all this? Trump's presidency was the intersection of luck and opportunity for the anti-abortion right. You know, it was in some ways a marriage of convenience. You know, Donald Trump was well known to have said he was pro-choice in the past. My opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court, I will say this, it will go back to the states and the states will then make a determination. He had what... One analyst called to me a campaign conversion and said he was anti-abortion. He, by historical accident almost, was able to appoint three justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. And those three justices now form part of the six-member conservative supermajority that made it possible to overturn Roe versus Wade. But I think that's really only part of the story. And it's sort of looking down a long path and ignoring the bend. Donald Trump was just the most recent example of the political power that the anti-abortion right has come to wield. So I think Trump was unmistakably an important part of this, but also the short end of a long tail. Jess, in the 70s, there did seem to be not that much political backlash to Roe versus Wade. How have things got to where we are today? In the 1970s, there was not an enormous backlash. But I think when it really began to turn into a substantial political movement was in the late 1970s when 
Republican strategists were searching for a way to animate the vote of millions and millions of evangelical Protestants and to bring Catholics into their tent. And it's also come to be identified with like what the heart of Republicanism. Rural and conservative voters began to identify themselves as anti-abortion and Republican and began to identify themselves with socially conservative issues. And because the American Constitution has always favored rural voters, it put states in a position where Republicans could represent the interests of fewer voters and still win because of that rural favoritism. Jess, an estimated 85% Americans today believe that abortion should be legal in at least some circumstances. Can you explain how the anti-abortion movement has secured such significant change in this moment? Well, as one analyst on the Christian right who's tracked them for decades told me, they are quite simply the best organized political faction in the United States today. They are a minority. They represent a minority of voters and a minority opinion on this issue. And yet, because of their activism within the Republican Party, because of their work to change campaign finance laws, they've managed through this reciprocal relationship to come to dominate one of the major political parties in the United States. President Biden called this ruling a tragic error. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans. But they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. Fifty years ago... And he said that the court was taking the country on an extreme and dangerous path. Jess, why have the Democrats, with their president in power, been unable to stop this? The simplest answer comes down to the Senate. The Senate is split evenly between Democrats and Republicans. Right now, Democrats would need to surmount what's called a filibuster, which requires a 60-vote majority to pass any kind of abortion legislation. And right now, it appears that they simply don't have the votes in the Senate. It's perhaps possible that that could change because the ripple effects of this could be so profound that perhaps more Democrats are elected to the Senate. But generally, in a midterm election, it's the opposing party that is favored, and it's unclear how it could impact the midterms. Even though Biden controls the White House, Democrats control the House and have passed abortion protections in the past, it's the Senate that is the biggest stumbling block to protecting abortion nationally in the United States. And at a state level now, what are Democrats doing to protect abortion rights? In a minority of states, Democrats are working to shore up reproductive rights protections to the maximum of their abilities. So for example, in California, Democratic lawmakers there are seeking to have a constitutional amendment put on the November ballot. So that would be a very secure way to protect abortion in California. Similarly, in Michigan, which is a much more purple state, there is a drive to get constitutional protections to bear children when you want and in a safe environment 
onto the November ballot and have voters vote on that. The stakes are very high in Michigan because they have an abortion ban that's almost 100 years old that's expected to go into effect and ban abortion in that state. In other Democrat-controlled states, there are also efforts to find state funding to support women who might be traveling in from out of state. But there's only so much protection that states primarily on the coasts can provide to women who are in the South or Midwest where abortion has been banned. Coming up, what other rights are at risk of being scrapped by the Supreme Court? Jess, overturning Roe versus Wade isn't the only shocking judgment that this Supreme Court has made. Just the day before this ruling, on Thursday, the Supreme Court struck down a 111-year-old gun law that stops New Yorkers carrying handguns outside of their home. Now, given the composite of the court, what other rights could be at stake here? Well, I think, first of all, to play devil's advocate, the Supreme Court would argue that the gun rights case and the abortion rights case were decided on very different grounds. But to turn to the abortion rights case specifically, it strikes at the heart of a branch of judicial reasoning called substantive due process. And from that sort of arcane sounding term flow a lot of the rights that we consider the most basic and fundamental individual freedoms enjoyed by Americans. For example, the right to marry who you choose, the right to intimacy of your own choosing within your own home, the right to contraception. This is not just my own speculation that the court may reconsider these cases. In one of the concurring opinions, Justice Clarence Thomas laid out that he believed the court should revisit three cases in specific. That would be Obergefell, which granted the right to same-sex marriage, Lawrence, which granted the right to same-sex intimacy, and Griswold, which granted married couples the right to contraceptive and later led to the right to contraceptive for unmarried people as well. And Jess, it is not far-fetched to say that given its political and cultural influence, that what happens in America can end up having a profound effect on other countries. Now, the US is only the fourth since the 90s to restrict abortions, Poland, Nicaragua, and El Salvador being the other three. What could Friday's ruling mean for abortion rights elsewhere in the world? I mean, I think the immediate impact is it will energize anti-abortion groups internationally, many of which are funded through entities in the United States. So this is going to add momentum to their drive to circumscribe the right to abortion. There's a lot of work happening on this in Africa and in Spain and in other European countries too, including the UK. There are two more deeper ramifications. One is that the opinions of the Supreme Court are cited by other courts around the world. So it becomes a way for other nations whose courts may be hostile to abortion to find inter international precedent to justify their decision. And I think the third way is that it really curtails the U.S. ability to lobby on behalf of the rights of women and girls globally. 
Because if women and girls can't obtain a right to abortion in the United States, something that's recognized as a human right by the United Nations, how can our diplomats then go abroad and say, you really need to provide for the educational needs of women and girls, or you really need to provide for reproductive freedom for women and girls, or contraception, or um, end the practice of child marriage, for example, those topics are going to suddenly become a lot more difficult for the U.S. to be a leader on. The U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health once told me that when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. And I think we should remember that when we think about our influence on these issues globally. And of course, banning abortions doesn't stop women needing them or trying to access them. How dangerous are the consequences here for women's lives? Well, we're not in 1972, scientifically, because we now have a medication that's very, very safe that women can use to to terminate early pregnancies. However, I think the extent to which women will seek to end their own pregnancies through more harmful means, I think it's not well understood at this point. It's not just the harm that could come from attempting to end an abortion and not having a safe way to do it, but it's also the harm that will come to women from bearing unwanted pregnancies because the United States has among the worst maternal mortality rate among developed nations in the world. So there are immediate life and death potential consequences, and then there are all of the other unforeseen circumstances that happen when you have a child. And given what's now expected in the months and years ahead, perhaps, where will you and the team at Garden US be focusing your reporting and energy in the coming months? It will be a wide spectrum. The life and death consequences for women, the emotional, physical, financial consequences for women and their families, the plans of anti-abortion groups in the United States. We want to know, for example, if they're finding success in their push to ban abortion nationally. How have women been impacted by being forced to bear a child, even if it's the child of a good relationship? And in the worst case scenario, a child of rape or incest or other horrific circumstances. I would like to know how prosecutors at the local level are going to react to this. Are they going to seek to criminalize women? I want to know what the impacts on doctors are. Are they going to start to leave the communities that they have served for years because they feel a threat to their own individual liberty? And does that in turn imperil wanted pregnancies? Women who want to have a child and want to seek prenatal care but are unable to do so because the doctors in their community felt so threatened that they left. There are so many ramifications, but I hope that that is a short list of some that we will be looking into. Jessica Glenzer, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Jessica Glenzer. You can read more from her and the rest of the Guardian US team on reproductive rights at theguardian.com. I would especially look out for their comprehensive mapping exercise, Abortion Deserts, 
America's new geography of access to care. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Klitsia Sala and Natalie Khitana. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>